in this tough time uh, or just tough times in general, what you do really won't be remembered for five, 10, you know, that that's what it's going to make or break your name or what you're going to become known for. You're listening to Investing for Good, a show that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are investing to build a legacy for their families, create a meaningful and intentional life by design and impact the world around them. And now here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey, Julie, how are you? Hey, I'm doing good, Annie. How about you? You surviving over there? Oh, yeah. You know, settling into the new normal. Kids at home. Ain't no thing. Tantrums. I can handle it. Throw it my way. I got it. I got it. (laughs) Well, by now, yeah. I mean, we're rolling into the second month here. We're like a month and a half. It's crazy. It's just crazy. I still feel like it's March. I know. <laughs> I feel like time hasn't really progressed. I don't know if it's because every day is like the same. We're always at home and the same routine every day. I don't know if it's like my brain has like truncated the timeline in my I know. mind. But I know. I feel like never has time passed so quickly. I know. And so slowly and all so at the same slowly. time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So- yeah, it's at least May now, so you can be like, it's m- Mar- May, right. it's May, right. that's right. <laughs> I know, oh, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Well, on today's episode, we have a very interesting conversation yes. with Jason Shaw about real estate development. It's an area that I don't know a whole lot about. And there's a point in the conversation where he talks about going to the city, going to the planning department, where I was just like, oh man, that's like, I draw the line there. You make me go to the city? Uh -uh." (laughs) Uh-uh. But I I love his his hustle, where he's just like, you know what? It's just about figuring out the answers to these questions, and I just got to go and ask the right questions, and then I'll I'll learn what I need to know. And look where he is now. He's doing tons of development projects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's development has always been something, an area of real estate that I feel like is kind of off limits for me because of (laughs) that very thing right there of like, you know, mm-hmm. I don't, what do I do with this? I don't right. know. Who do I talk to? The city? The city where? Like, I don't even know where I to know. go. You know, it seems like so elusive and, and so far away yeah. and so far out of reach. But it sounds like from, you know, his experience that he's really narrowed down a strategy and uh, a plan to, um, you know, get things taken care of and get it done quickly. One of the things that really interested me was the, you know, potential returns that he's looking at for his investors, because it sounds like it's a little bit higher than it would otherwise be for the typical like multifamily deals that we do. But I think with the the main difference with development doing like he had mentioned is that there's like this little bit of period of time where you may not collect returns. And so you kind of have to weigh the benefits, you know, do you go for a period of time without returns and then get a like bigger chunk on the end? Or do you get the steady, you know, cash flow like you do in the deals that we do? But um, yeah, it was really interesting to hear him also talk about the different risks in the deal, um, which I have heard entitlement is the biggest thing. And that's why when you go into look at buying certain real estate, especially if it's a flip entitlement is always like, you know, one of the first things that you look at to make sure that that's already in place and that you're good to go. Because if that piece of it isn't there, you could end up being stuck with a property that, um, you know, wasn't for its intended uh, use. So 
yeah, really interesting conversation. Yeah. And for that reason right there is exactly why you need a strong team when you're investing, mm -hmm. whether you're investing in multifamily or you're investing in development deal, you need a strong team mm -hmm. that will, when the going gets tough, they'll still keep pushing forward. Mm -hmm. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Jason Chow. Jason, how are you? Good. How are you guys? We're great. Now, Jason, we have a lot to talk about because I know you do a lot of different things. But to start, I wanted to take us back in time for a moment when you were back in college. Well, what did you study in college? I started in accounting and um, okay. you know, that was my parents' advice to uh, save <laughs> and study career track kind of thing. And mm -hmm. I tried as much as I could and I did my internship. I really enjoyed it from a managerial perspective or, you know, what the numbers trying to tell me. But really, I, I could not, I knew I couldn't hack it. Um, even though I had an offer from GDPC <laughs> to go to New York, I, I ended up doing uh, more of the marketing route. So Interesting. Okay, so you studied accounting and then sort of veered toward marketing, but some sort of business. And while most of your peers were probably thinking about, you know, frat parties and graduation and midterms, you did something very different. You actually started investing in real estate and bought your first property while you were still in college. Is that right? Yeah. So I wasn't one of the real cool kid or kind of an offer to it, but, and, you know, we have a family business growing up, I always kind of had that exposure. And I think the summer between I, when I finished high school and college, you know, I took the Dale Carnegie training course. And I think even before that, too, actually, I just wrote an article on Forbes about it where I was like, wait, how did I get into all this self-help leadership books? And it was because of the uh, Seven Habits book by Stephen Covey. Mm. I, of course, like a lot of people, I also read Rich Dad Poor Dad that summer. And Mm -hmm. You know, I kind of set in motion, but I didn't actually do it until my second year because my first year I was in the dorms. Um, basically, I convinced my dad to put up the money to buy a two-bedroom condo. So that way, my sisters last year, my second year, we would live there, cover, you know, it's, you know, saves on rent a little bit. And then after she moves out, I told him, I'm going to rent it out to my friends or whoever, pay you back, cover interests and expenses, and whatever leftover is my beer money, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and what did your dad think about that? Was he like, had he done real estate? Had he invested in real estate before? Nothing spectacular. Like, you know, we, we grew up in Taiwan. So, you know, I think the financial markets are not as mature. And, but, you know, they've done some stuff. They're, it's not, they're not strangers to it. And so I think mm -hmm. in general, to my parents' credit, they do try to encourage and foster these kind of behaviors. I mean, my mom didn't want me to go into business at all. Took like she just thought we got super lucky with our business. It's just like you know, it's kind of the typical Asian parents like go be a lawyer, doctor, or engineer kind of thing. So, what kind of business is it that your family has? Uh, if you ever had a flat tire, you know what fix a flat is. Those yeah. um, aerosol mm -hmm. there, the top. That's my dad and my patent. Um, I was about hmm. or 17 when we came up with that. Hmm. Um, so we supplied just the caps to, to people and basically, you know, growing up, like after school, I go to the factory, I do, I do my homework. And after I'm done, I help out 
wherever I can. And obviously as I got older, taller, stronger, like my, my <laughs> involvement becomes more and more involved kind of thing. So mm-hmm. that's so fascinating. So, okay. So when I think about when I was growing up, right, when I was growing up, uh, my parents both worked full-time jobs. So I would come home and then I'd do my homework I practice piano. And then my parents would come home and then we'd eat dinner. We'd go to bed. It was pretty, you know, they would tell me about their jobs or whatnot, but to actually like go to the factory and see your family business. What was that like as a kid? As a kid, you probably didn't think much of it. I mean, it was just, that's the, that's what was normal to us, right? Like mm. about, and obviously, you know, child labor laws in Taiwan. <laughs> is so, I mean, I didn't mind it. It was, it was fine. Like, you know, I um, was so somewhat mechanically inclined or I, I, I'm always kind of curious about how things work. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just sort of almost part of life for us kind of thing. And did you think, you know, someday when I grow up, I'm going to graduate from college and I'm going to take over the family business. Was that the plan? No, that, that wasn't never explicitly talked about. I mean, from time to time, we would talk to my parents. Uh, um, my, we, meaning my sister and I, would talk to them like, okay, what's your plan, estate planning-wise or transition plan-wise? And um, either, you know, I don't know if my dad maybe thought about it but just didn't know what to do or he doesn't want to think about it. I mean, I've always involved, been involved or helped out in different capacities from time to time. So, for example, when before I applied for my MBA, like I got a lot more involved. I was like literally involved day to day at all aspects so that I can, you know, have those more managerial exposure and a little bit more content or material on my on my application as well or in my application. Cool. Um, I'm curious to know a little bit more about how. So you did this house hacking in college and then like how tell us about how that led you down the path of going into real estate. Like what happened after that? Yeah, so there are sort of different states. I would say the first half, you know, the first seven or eight years or so, we didn't do that much. We had that that condo, we ended up selling it. I ended up investing in a bar as well in Austin, which is what a lot of, you know punk ass kids at 22, <laughs> 23 year old with some disposable income would think of. And I remember looking at the numbers too, just like, man, wait, wait a second. Like how much are we paying in rent? And where's this guy? He's in Woodstock, New York. And I look around six tree, like bars turn over all the time, but the building's always there. So that also planted another sea where I'm going, guys, I think we're in the wrong business. <laughs> <Seriously>. <laughs> Um, and you know, we bought a few units in the downturn, like oh seven, oh eight, foreclosed in Houston. We've since then sold off most of it, except one or so. So we dabbled here and there in that first half. The inflection point is what my dad bought a duplex that was kind of run down, but with the zoning, you can tear down and redevelop three new houses on it. Um, he wanted to do that. He had hired a friend of his to help him, but he wasn't very he just wasn't suitable for this he's really only a surveyor he's not a land use consultant or entitlement kind of guy so we got we got you know we were working for quite a while to get that entitled get that built and coincidentally my tech job wasn't really going that well like the company was just constantly reorganizing you know i joined the company because i wanted to work for the senior director that essentially 
you know, if things goes well, she'll probably get promoted with VP. And I'm just like that first job, you're just kind of trying to find a good wagon to hit onto. But she left three months into my job and, you know, I was on my third manager nine months and, and it, I knew sort of like the writings on the wall to a certain extent. And it's funny too, because we were all about mobile technology. So essentially I, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody by this point, but my managers were in Boston. So I'm literally flying down to LA, going to the planning department at seven thirty in the morning or eight o'clock to help my dad out. And then by the time, you know, I figured that stuff, I'll go back to my regular day job kind of thing. It just a lot of bumps in the row and figuring out what, you know, you don't know what you don't know in the beginning. And it comes down to a lot of reading and a lot of asking a lot of questions. I mean, I, I will say I'm not the smartest guy in the world. What makes me different is I'm, I know what questions to ask to know, to get to the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of like in, mm-hmm. in, in school, right? It's like, okay, if you know the answer, you get an A, but if you don't, you're, right. you know, go to the back of the line kind of thing. Um, and over, yeah, overall, eventually we, we get, we got through that hump, we got it built and, you know, we, it's, it's a big sense of accomplishment. And we also kind of like, okay, do we actually enjoy this or do we, you know, this is just too much. It's, you know, this, let's never do this again kind of thing. And we kind of came to the conclusion that, you know, hey, this is very unique, a special knowledge. Not a lot of people know. And um, I think the, the transformation, more than just a flip to, you know, when you're flipping houses, like this is a brand new house that you created that you can point to somebody and say, yeah, like we made this happen kind of thing. So we decided to scale up more and more. And right now, you know, we're doing some pretty interesting projects too, that and bigger projects. But in general, you know, it's the same same play that we're looking for lots that are zoned appropriately for say three, four, five, six houses, depending on the area. Sometimes they might be more of a multifamily hold and play. And I would say for the last two years or so, we that's been in the back of our minds to to have that option that if the market turns that we'll just hold on to them and rent them out and, you know, hold for, for a shinier day kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about the, so, so I, I'm curious to know more about like this, how you moved into the development space. You, it, did it all start with that one duplex that, yeah, that, was, that, yeah I, I mean, I'd somewhat jokingly tell people I'm, I'm a reluctant developer and really it was just headstrong where, I know it wasn't going well. And at the same time, it's kind of an Asian culture thing where I, I am asking the guy a lot of tough questions, mm-hmm. right? To one, I just wanted to understand what's going on. And two is like, I want you to admit to, to me that you screwed up. Mm-hmm. And my dad was mm-hmm. like, no, don't like, you know, about the whole saving face thing. Like, don't ask him all these questions. Mm-hmm. And essentially I was like, well, I'm not willing to let you lose money on this either. Mm-hmm. So like, we mm-hmm. got to do something. We got to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So I just started going to the planning department, you know, asking yeah. a lot of dumb questions. Right? How old were you at this point? Um, I was like 32-ish. 32. Okay. So 32. I mean, most people are like 
pretty intimidated by, I, I know I am when I think about going to the city or going to the planning department, like what? But like, ask her to raise like millions of dollars and she's like, no problem. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No problem. But go to the city. I'm like, where do I go? Which room? Who do I talk to? And then when you had to do that, you went to the planning department, you were working full-time job, but you were going to the planning department to try to get these answers for your dad. Were you like scared at all? Were you like, or were you just like, I'm going to get these answers for my dad. He deserves this. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily say scared. I mean, personally, I, I don't have qualms about talking to strangers, right? Like I've done sales door to door. I like, yeah, like I don't really have a problem talking to strangers. It can be frustrating or intimidating whatnot but you know i think when it was down to it's like okay well you don't when you don't have any other options but moving forward like what else are you gonna do right not i mean almost kind of a fight fight or flight kind of thing and like when you don't know what to do it's just you literally it's almost like a startup you like you gotta try everything so so what happened mm-hmm. i mean because i don't know that maybe i missed it missed that part of it but what happened you guys bought the bought the duplex you knew it was zoned correcting or or you hadn't even talked yeah, thought about is right and it was in county jurisdiction which county because of understaffing tend to move a little bit slower mm-hmm. but even at this point you know when i started getting involved it was already kind of past when you should be getting your entitlement and so this is more la county everybody's mileage might differ i would say la county if you two years to get your entitlement ready to build that's a pretty fair ballpark mm-hmm. so we were already there and past it so i started asking questions and again, like that two-year mark, that's from talking to a lot of other developers, contractors, or people that have done this. Mm-hmm. So it took another, I don't know, six or eight months or so before we were able to clear all the, all the questions, all the checklists off uh, mm-hmm. that the planning department has for us to actually. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's literally the first thing is like, okay, who should I talk to? And then they're like, oh, you should go talk to the public works department on Baldwin Avenue over there. So I went, I went at 10 o'clock or so in the morning and there was like a bunch of people in there and I go, okay, well, what time do you guys open? Oh, eight. Okay. Well, I'll come back tomorrow at eight. And I get there at eight and there's already line out of the door. It's like, okay, son of a gun. Like, okay, I'll come back at seven thirty tomorrow. <laughs> and feel free to ask any like specific things you want to know. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. So what was the intention when you guys bought the property? What was the intention to do with it? We were intending to to buy it, build it, and sell it. Okay. So the redevelopment was always a what you had planned to do. It wasn't like you bought it as like a you were going to buy the duplex, buy and hold, and then there was no plan to redevelopment. That was always develop it. It was always something you guys wanted to do. Okay. Okay. Okay, cool. And then how is, so is that, was that the introduction into getting into what you do now on the development side? Yeah. So, I mean, every city might have its own nuances or procedures to follow, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. again, once you've gone through it, like the major milestone or major checkpoints, you kind of know that, okay, well, the first thing is you got to meet with planning and then after planning signs off, you got to go to to the building department and then they'll look at your plans and materials and all that other stuff. Then once you clear that, then you can start breaking ground and I've been a GC actually build things and what you have, well, 
technically you don't have to finish building it. We like to, once we have the entitlement or foundation is poor, we try to pre-sell it if we can. So that way we already have a buyer um, mm-hmm. or have that market feedback to know kind of where, what price point we might come out at. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously every state has a lot of nuances or steps involved as well. But in general, that's kind of what, what, what's involved. How does somebody identify a development opportunity? For a, like somebody like me or a regular person? I mean, just even for, for you, like if you were, you know, when you're going out there and you're looking for an opportunity, what is, where do you go? I mean, do you go to the MLS? Do you, I have no idea. I know nothing about development and how it works. I mean, the way we buy stuff is, you know, you go to a broker, you get the deal and, you know, you get it on contract. It's already, property's already there. But imagine what development, like y- you have to, I've heard this at conferences, like you, it has something to do with like going to like looking up like zoning of properties. And then like, is that where you start is like looking at like different areas that you want to focus on and then going to the planning department, looking at the zoning or how does, if one wanted to get into development, how would they go about that? Yeah. So there are multiple sources. Um, You know, if say you, Julie, or Annie wants to build their dream home, like you can just go to the MOS and, you know, you're trying to basically find lots there, you know, houses, they're super tiny or, you know, you, they're tear down candidates, so to speak okay. and, uh-huh. and direct mailers too, if you want. Sometimes I'll essentially manually export out what's recorded for the footage, footage, footage mm-hmm. uh, for the house and the square footage of the lot. And if it's like a really low ratio and obviously I'm, I'm kind of cherry picking certain zoning or certain parts of town that are new is conducive to this. Mm-hmm. So say like, I know it's zoned for three story townhouse and mm-hmm. this was, for example, this is, uh, there's a lot in Sunnyville. I literally was eyeing because it was all like 0.75 acres or so mm-hmm. and like three tiny houses on it. So that uh-huh. ratio that I was talking about, I knew already that mm-hmm. like, hey, mm-hmm. there's a lot of infill opportunity for this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I've sent letters to this owner and then turned out like somebody in my office plays softball with one of the sons and the, the parents passed away. Mm-hmm. So he was getting ready to to sell it. And it wasn't even on the market. Like his, his transaction coordinator mentioned, oh, hey, Steve has a listing that might be a good fit for you. And I was like, what's the address? And she wrote it down on a post-it. I looked at it. I was like, nope, I already know this. I already know this one. I already talked to her. I'm ready to submit an offer right now. Mm-hmm. That's wow. crazy. So basically, you're looking across these different parcels of, well, not land, but like these different um, properties. And you're looking to see, if I understand correctly, you're looking to see um, how much land there is in that parcel. And then you're looking to see what's already built on it and then what's allowed to be built on it. And then you're seeing if there's a big difference between what's currently on it and what's allowed to be built on it. If there's a big difference there, then you can go in and then maybe tear down or build additional buildings to get to that limit. Is that right? Yeah, and it doesn't have to be, there's something on it, I think just because California and you know land is scarce, like chances are there's something on it already. So development, I. I know it's kind of a foreign thing for a lot of people because they haven't done it, but I think the thought process is not that different, right? It's pretty much the same thing when you guys first underwrote a multifamily project. It's when it really boils down to it, it's a math problem. 
-hmm. And the only difference is in real life, they don't give you the numbers like in classroom. In classroom, they already tell you like this plus X, you know, equals whatever, solve for X kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So essentially we're just doing a math on, okay, where do we think, it's not that different from a flip either. Like, okay, where do we think we're going to exit out at? Where do we think our construction costs, our soft costs, design permit, and all that is going to be, mm-hmm. plus the land that the purchase price for the land that we're adding onto it, and what's what is that delta come out to? Is it something that fits our criteria, or is there enough sort of meat on the bone that if the market turns or if construction costs goes up, are we still okay? So a lot of times, you know, I'll even do a sensitivity analysis just to see how out of whack, you know, we can get before we're in the red, which is, again, similar to multifamily, right? But you're probably looking at your rent per, per square foot versus your cap rate, exit cap rate, and to see like, okay, are we, is this reasonable kind of thing? Yeah, well, that's such a great way to put it that in school, they give you all the numbers and in real life, you kind of got to go and ferret them out yourself and, and make assumptions in, at some points. But with all those unknowns, I, are there a lot of risks when you go into a development deal? I mean, what are the biggest risks that you consider and then how do you mitigate those risks? Yeah, so there's more risks in the sense that there's more steps involved than a value add multifamily, right? Like multifamily, assuming if, if, even if, if you have rent control that, that adds sort of the tenant relocation risk or that variable to it. But for development, essentially the biggest risks are your entitlement risk. Like, is the city going to allow you to build what you want to build? And sometimes this is very low because it's a buy ride. Like, if you're just building a single family home and everything's too co, co, like, you don't have to go to a hearing or anything like that. Like, it's just involving the time to designing it and getting through the the planning and building department. And here you go. And depending on the city and what size project, sometimes you're required a hearing. And that can be a total crapshoot. Like sometimes even though you're designing per what the zoning code is and the neighborhood is just very, you know, I, I get it. Like change is hard for a lot of people and they, the whole not in my backyard movement or people that just resistant to change, mm-hmm. they come out with their pitchforks or, you know, just protesting. They don't want you to build even though, you know, by law, you can develop what you want to build. Yeah. Have you ever been involved in something like that? I have, yeah. I mean, it hasn't been this bad for me because I think another thing I've done, I've, I literally, I'll go, before our hearing, I'll go door to door talking to all the neighbors. Mm. Number one, I want to get a better understanding of the neighborhood or just what their concerns. I would say, in general, a third of the people think I'm trying to sell them something and tell me to go away. And then a third of people might have something like, what are you doing? And then they look at it and say, okay, cool, it looks good. And then a third would like have some stronger opinions. And that's when I can like, I'm, or I'm sitting down literally in their home just to show them like, hey, yes, yeah, I understand you about the parking or height or noise. Like, and this is what we're doing to, to address them. So most of the time, um, because when you do these projects or these hearings, if you don't do this, the only people that are going to come out are the negative people that have mm-hmm. negative things to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're 100% within their right to do this. It's just that it's, it's, it's politics, right? And unfortunately, in politics, 
a lot of times it comes down to who makes the bigger noise. So I think this is something that we differentiate ourselves on and, you know, we invest in time, not just to get to know our neighbors too. And I think it has like, there's always going to be something. And I think the main thing is to show that you're listening, you're empathetic. And we, we do like, we do everything we can. This is at this point, we understand it's basically some of the main things that's going to come up over and over again, kind of thing. And we do everything we can to, to control that and to mitigate that. But there are people that, you know, I have friends that they had a project in Culver city and it's a big project. And they went out and basically some little sweet old lady was just saying, you guys are the devil. And you know, I hate what you're doing, blah, blah, blah. And you are like the greatest liar in the world. (laughs) Those are a little tough, but um, I think in general, you know, we are trying to do a good thing for the community. We always take into com- consideration the place and the context of what we're proposing versus all the surroundings. And I do think it shows through um, to the public and to the, to the city staff as well. So I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit about the returns to um, like, what do returns look like for investors? And then also what do returns look like for you on the active side? Like, can you give us a little bit of insight onto both of those? Yeah, so we haven't raised that many that much outside capital. So I'll do a quick, simplified way of how we think about some of this stuff before mm-hmm. we we'll go back to like some more concrete sort of IR numbers kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, because of these risk or time involved that we're doing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so say we're doing I don't know an eight-unit apartment. Um, mm-hmm. Essentially, say. If the market cap rate is 5%, we mm-hmm. want to be compensated for the effort that we're putting in, the risk we're taking on. Mm-hmm. So we won't do it if our return on cost or basically all the costs involved and the return is 1% over the market cap rate. So if mm-hmm. all these costs, you add up all these costs and the rent and expenses, mm-hmm. if it's not performing on at least a 6%, we probably won't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but however, mm-hmm. if it's really good and, you know, a lot of things worked out in our favor, it's actually performing at 2% over the cap rate, market cap rates, mm-hmm. or like 7% in this, in this instance, this mm-hmm. means this is great. Like we're getting a huge premium on this. We will probably just keep this, but everything in between chances are we will sell them and turn the capital over. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the IRR, what that translates out to, it's, it shifts over the mm-hmm. years. Um, some people are willing to keep working in projects, but with lower returns. If you want to say on just a pure return on uh, perspective, like the, the equation I was talking about, I would like to have like a 30% uh, margin on it. Mm-hmm. Some people I know they'll do 20 or even lower. Um, but really what that translates to, it's usually, you know, I don't really like to do anything that's not a 3x equity multiple um, or 20. Like, ideally, like in, right now, maybe in the 18 to 20% IRR, if you factor into the, the time aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so a little bit better or higher than, say, you know, some of these 14, 16% IRR for, for multifamily kind of thing. We'll get back to our conversation with Jason in just a minute. Have you been thinking about investing in real estate, but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? 
Perhaps you're afraid, like we were, that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country and then partner with you to acquire these investments and then we'll all share in the returns. We'll identify the growing markets, strong, experienced teams, and the solid deals. We do all the heavy lifting of managing the tenants and the renovations, and as a passive partner, you get to enjoy all the benefits of investing in real estate, monthly cash flow, long-term appreciation, and the ongoing tax benefits. When we first discovered passive investing through real estate syndications, we realized it fit perfectly into our busy lives. We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives. We invite you to partner with us by joining the Good Egg Investor Club today so you can start putting your money to work for you and get more time back in your day because we know that when people have more time in their days, they can do the true work they were intended to do and the world will be a better place. To sign up for the Good Egg Investor Club, go to goodegginvestments.com invest and we'll take it from there. That's goodegginvestments.com invest. And now... Back to our chat with Jason Chow. There's a period of time with development deals where you don't make any money, right? As an investor, right? Because it's like you're going through the entitlement process or doing the build out or like, how does that work out? Yeah. So it, it depends. It doesn't have to be like, if you're buying vacant land, definitely. Yeah. But for example, we had a small commercial parcel. It was totally vacant. So, and actually while we were trying to figure it out, what to do with it, uh, or getting the entitlement uh, in place. I actually found a guy that does Christmas tree lots. So mm. for, I mean, he's only really in business for about three months of the year, mm-hmm. but the rent that he pays to rent our lot, that covers mm-hmm. our property tax. So there is ways to generate uh, rent, but I mean, in this case, it was a commercial land, or a lot of times too, we're, the property has some tenant in place Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that essentially you're getting pretty low rent for it, but depending on where you are, sometimes you, you have to worry about relocation later, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Or our QSE project right now, it's a commercial tenant, their adult vocation program. And, you know, we're getting maybe like six, $7,000 rent on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when it gets closer to breaking ground, then, you know, we'll, work with them on relocating them or some kind of buyout of their lease. And then what are the, like on an act from an active standpoint, how do you guys make money? Like, is it at the point at which you sell? I think you touched on this a little bit earlier. Like you look to sell, like after you're building you try to sell the potent, the properties that you're building before they're actually finished to try to make money on the deal before it's actually completed? Like, how does that work out? Yeah. So if it's just, if you're planning to sell it, then mm-hmm. yes, like you don't make your money until you actually sell it. Like when you're flipping mm-hmm. the house. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we have long-term plans for these properties, then yeah, once we built it, we stabilize it and then we can refi sort of the, the burr method, if you will, but mm-hmm. on, in a commercial real estate application. And what kind of properties are you guys like building right now? like developing 
I mean, we're still on a smaller scale. You know, we're not doing these, uh, you know, high rises or anything like that. So we we like blend or parcels or zone for it. Usually they end up being like three, four, five, six houses, something like that. Mm. Or, you know, small multis. Mm-hmm. Uh, our biggest project right now is a 16 home next to our food hall project, which is a little bit more creative or it was kind of not the first motion we considered, but mm-hmm. we also have a 63 unit QOZ qualified opportunities on project that we're working on. That's, you know, a, a bit of a leap for us as well, but it was one of our goals for 2019 and we worked really hard finding these deals. So yeah, we've been kind of just, you know, growing, growing, and then occasion will take a step up or a leap up kind of thing. What's been the best deal that you've done so far? Um, best deal. Well, hopefully the food hall one. Tell everyone what a food hall is. The food hall, if you've been to say the ferry terminal building in San Francisco, or there's a couple in East Bay, like the what's it called Swan Market or Emeryville Public Market. I think the bigger national well-known ones are like Chelsea Market and Ponce City Market in Atlanta. Chelsea's in uh, in Chelsea. Well, in New York, the, um, it's essentially a space that has multiple food concepts that you know people can come in, have different options, and it's a welcoming place to hang out, grab a bite to eat, and uh, stay however long you like, kind of thing. So probably the last three years or so, or four years, it kind of started picking up a lot of more steams. You start seeing more and more of them uh, coming online in different cities, different neighborhoods. So is the food hall done at this point, or where are you in that project? Wow, we're we're about a month away, mm-hmm. I would say. Um, there's still a lot of details. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's just a lot of design elements. And then we kind of also, we sit right where cities involved with in charge of certain things, but then the county's involved in a certain things and county again moves slower and the city and county doesn't talk to one another kind of thing. So a lot of times we're just off and like there's one issue literally we just call the city and the county go, hey, uh I'm down here next Tuesday and you guys go work this out because we're tired of this. <laughs> like literally just yeah. tell us what you want. So the timing that is is really interesting, especially given everything that's going on right now with COVID-19. So how has that impacted the food hall and maybe your other development projects? Yeah. So in general, I think NorCal's rules are a little bit different than SoCal. SoCal construction is on the essential list. So everybody that wants to work is working. There are definitely subcontractors or trades that they're not comfortable going out and that's fine. So it's been a bit of a juggling act. And I think the first week, I would say the whole COVID thing, the biggest lesson or takeaway for me is just about leadership and communication. And there's so many other elements of leadership, but we really work hard that first week to get in touch with everybody, our subs, our, our GC and the city, public health, county, just to understand, okay, what changes are you making so that we can adapt to our game plan as well? And fortunately, you know, they were still sending inspectors out and, you know, public health, basically they're still processing things, but you can't come into the building. Literally they have a box. You go in and you drop off your plans and then you call and go, Hey, it's there. Uh, Go look at it. 
I know NorCal is not as fortunate. Literally, I think NorCal is, unless your roof is falling off, we're not sending anybody out for anything. And, you know, a lot of communications with our tenants, these are all mainly food and beverage businesses. And a lot of people, I think they'll probably feel better now, but initially, you know, there are a lot of people, they're not sure how they're going to get through it. They, they closed their stores and they told their staff to go home kind of thing. But, you know, it's, I think it was Mark Cuban that said something to this regard where in this tough time, uh, or just tough times in general, what you do really won't be remembered for five, 10, you know, that that's what it's going to make or break your name or what you're going to become known for. You know, Wells Fargo, if you have terrible technology or whatever. <laughs> um, so for us, we really, from the get-go, we, because we've been small business owners, we've been on the operating side. We wanted to be a champion, champion for them. And, you know, this whole food hall thing is really, we're helping spread all these capex that you have normally you have to spend on the build out of your space, the permitting and all that into more of the opex, almost like that AWS or cloud computing kind of thing. And we wanted to make it as turnkey for them as possible. And knowing that they're going through tough time, you know, we were doing everything we can to, to help them, get the PPP loans and um, all the SBA stuff. And fortunately too, for them, like we weren't finished yet and you know, there's no money out of their pocket to build out these spaces and they, they weren't, um, you know, having to, to eat the cost to keep their staff, those kind of things. So, you know, I think we're trying to time it. I think timeline wise, it'll work out pretty well for us. I, I'm not certain on our grand opening plans yet because on one hand, it ultimately comes down to the safety and health for everybody involved, our customers that walk through the door, our tenants, our, their staff. I think we'll probably be able to open in about a month, but we'll just kind of extend that soft opening phase. I don't know where we land right now. I'm thinking July or August will be okay to, or and people will feel a lot better to go out in public or, you know, I think we'll also, we'll still have to have all the safety and health measures in place. Like we'll probably require everybody to wear a mask. We'll probably be really strict about cleaning with our, our janitorial staff, those kind of things. But, you know, if things change, obviously we will have to keep postponing the, the grand opening and hopefully not till you know, not all the way to 2021 because that's also not, not very good for business for our, for our tenants. But yeah, I mean, I think sometimes in the back of my head, I just, I have this image of a headline out there somewhere that, you know, 10,000 people got sick because mm-hmm. they came to our grand, grand opening party. Like I don't yeah. want that to happen. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, well, if there's one thing that's clear from everything that you've said, you know, it's money is important, but it's not the be all and end all. And it's clearly not the main reason why you all do what you do. It's it's clear how much impact plays into everything that you do and how much you guys care about the community from going door to door to now supporting these businesses. Um, it's clear that you're really all about community impact and helping to make a difference. So 
looking forward, you know, now that you have all this development experience under your belt, if you were to look forward, do you think you'll continue doing the types of projects you're doing now um, with these smaller smaller development projects, mid-sized development projects, or do you have plans to go bigger? Yeah, I think um, we'll, we'll stay the course. It's hard to predict or say what the market's going to be like or what kind of opportunity is going to come up. Um, I think right now I do just, uh, I do like these smaller, medium-sized projects because, you know, it doesn't require a lot of capital raise. It's easier to do. It's very manageable bite sites or they're bite right. You know, I'm looking at a lot of these fourplex projects where if they're zoned for it, essentially you can turn a single family home into a fourplex and that will be great whether you, you build it and sell it or build it and keep it. Gradu- overall, I think as we learn more, develop ourselves and get to know other developers, um, there'll be more and more co-developing opportunities where we can take on bigger projects. And, you know, I think as, as, you, as we go to people see our track records and they're more likely to invest with us. I mean, it's hard advice that I try to give myself sometimes too, but I, just, I do think it's one of these iterative process that, it takes time. Like everybody, a lot of times sees things as a 10 year overnight success, but I know that number one, like, yeah, we've done some good work, but we're just getting started. My partner and I, he probably doesn't like it when I, when I keep saying this, but like, Hey man, we got like 30 or 40 years in our career left. But he was like, no, I want to build things now. I think for me, it's just to keep reminding myself to show up every day to do good work. And over time you'll get there it's hard to do because I think a lot of people see Grant Cardone and say, like, I want 10 X tomorrow. Like, okay. But yes, like for inspiration or aspiration purposes, like, yes, I get it, but you have to be realistic. So yeah, I like to keep continue doing what we're doing and just grow and build and um, scale up gradually kind of things. Cool. Thank you so much for all of that. Um, do you want to move into the last part of the show, the investing for good impact round? Sure. Let's do it. Okay. So we're going to ask you three questions. So the first question is around investing in yourself. So tell us one way that your investments have provided a better life for you and your family. Uh, I think really it's just that, that flexibility, you know, I think, I mean, I also invest in, in multifamily or out of state too. So I think really it just, it creates sort of that safety net. So number one, you can maybe take on a little bit extra risk that you normally wouldn't be able to kind of thing. And then the flexibility to, to hang out with your, with your family or with my daughter, if I want to kind of thing and take some, you know, mini trips here and there, go up to our place in Tahoe and then fly some friends. Cool. So second question is around investing for others. So what is one investment strategy or hack that you might be able to share with our audience that will help them catapult their investing journey? Yeah. So I actually have two. There's one's more generic and one's maybe a little bit more applicable to the time we're in right now. I think the first one's similar to a lot of questions that you guys asked. Like if you want to build your own dream house or want to get into development, it's not as hard or not as scary as you think. It's, I think 
uh, when your knowledge goes up, the risk goes down. So I think a lot of times people are just thinking it's risky because they don't know what's involved or what, what you do. Right. Um, but the other part to more relevant to the time we're in right now, um, it's kind of funny. We're now going full circle. It's actually accounting related. as well. <laughs> I think most people, you know, sort of one-on-one is they don't even know how to balance. They're just learning how to balance their checkbook. And then the mm-hmm. one is maybe like, Oh, okay. I'm actually understanding my income and my losses. But a lot of the investor are maybe at the 301 level where they understand, Hey, there's a difference between reported income and cash flow. And mm-hmm. I would say right now, there's a third statement that in standard regular accounting reporting that's very important, which is actually the balance sheet, the, the, the mm-hmm. asset and the debt. And I've been doing a lot of these virtual meetups. And one of the biggest takeaway I've been able to get out of it is how well are you capitalized right now? So yes, like mm-hmm. maybe the banks are willing to give you 80% LTV. Does that mean you should take it or do it? Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. not. So I think, it's just understanding the power of leverage and debt and knowing like it's a double-edged sword that you need to multiply for. I love that. I love that because that's something that we look for in the deals that we do. Um, when we talk about the LTV on the deals, you know, I always say that you don't really want to be anything over 75% at the max. Um, but you also want to kind of take advantage of the low interest rates, um, and where we're at. And so, you know, something in the sixties makes sense, but exactly. It's kind of maintaining that balance, uh, investing in the world. So what is one thing that your investments are doing to make the world a better place? Yeah. So I do a lot of different things. Um, you know, I try to give back through my meetup. Um, some people people ask me like why I'm doing this. I think really I've seen it for myself, my family, my dad's friends, and you guys, so many people, the power of real estate and the power of compounding interest. Um, I named my meetup, the snowball real estate meetup, um, bringing speakers to educational content and, you know, bringing, being a facilitator of serendipity really, um, connect flippers with harmony lenders or wholesalers, those kind of things. Um, and on top of that, I actually set up, a, uh, not a foundation, it's an endowment with my my school at University of Texas in Austin and named it actually in my parents' name. So every year I'll contribute X amount to the school to essentially uh, empower other people that want to pursue uh, entrepreneur entrepreneurial endeavors. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's meetups are a lot of work. Um, it's something that Annie and I have not yet committed to. We've talked about it a lot, but we have not um, wanted to do that. So I love that you're uh, doing that for for the community. I love that though. Facilitator of serendipity. Ah. That's so awesome. That's exactly it, because you're providing this opportunity for people to come together and do who knows what, create the next big thing. And, you know, so that that is really cool. All right, Jason. Well, we've covered a lot, but I'm sure there's much more to learn about you and all that you're doing. So what's the best place that our listeners can go to connect with you and learn more? Yeah, I think there you can. The best way is probably LinkedIn. If you add me on Facebook because I have a small daughter and you don't send me a message, I might not accept there. But LinkedIn, I will talk to everybody. Um, I have a personal website. It's just my my name, jasonshaw.com. Um, our company's name is Invest with Shaw. That's spelled S H A W dot com. You can check out my Instagram on what I've been up to or some little wisdom or nuggets that I posted. 
and that's at Jason underscore Shovel Ready. That's alluding to a potential podcast that has out called Shovel Ready. So Shovel Ready, I love it. Well, Jason Shao, real estate developer, investor, and realtor. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Jason. Thank you, guys. Stay safe. Wash your hands. <laughs> Love it. You've been listening to Investing for Good, the number one podcast for people like you who are investing to build a legacy for their families, create a meaningful and intentional life by design, and impact the world around them. For more resources, check out goodegginvestments.com slash podcast. And be sure to join the Investing for Good Facebook community. And don't forget to subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations every week. Until next time, keep investing for good.